You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. I'm so thrilled to have this interview with you. Thank you so much for uh, having the time to do this. My pleasure. It's a joy to be with you. <laughs> so usually in these interviews, I'd like to begin in the early stages. You have a long history and uh, astonishing biography, but I'd like to begin with your decision to become a medical doctor. What impacted you know, this initial decision? You know, you can become a doctor because of many reasons. In my case, it's because it was a vocation. It's also a family vocation. I have many, many doctors in my family. And I was kind of destined due to all of this to be in the medical profession. But I embraced it as a way to help others to remove suffering, but also to fulfill my passion for understanding life, for understanding human beings, for understanding what is our potential, why we do what we do, why diseases happen, how we can resolve this, and how we can make life better. So it was in that direction that I got passionate about medicine. And from that point on, what led you to the field of consciousness and studying consciousness for so many years? Like, could be two different things. How did you find them together? I came to realize that the final kind of distillation or outcome of our physiological functioning, our mind, our intellect is actually in our consciousness, which means it is through consciousness, which is like a window or a screen, that we see how our life develops, that we experience happiness, pain and suffering, hope, expectations, planning, thinking, analyzing. All of this happens through our consciousness. If we are not conscious, there is nothing that is meaningful, really, because when you're not conscious, you do not experience anything, you cannot plan anything, you cannot dream, you cannot have any touch with yourself, with your reality. And so, of course, first consciousness was considered as something either that you have or you don't have, or that you have in like different states like dreaming, sleeping, and waking. But then I discovered that all of these colors of consciousness, which we call feeling, love, happiness, pain, these are colors of our awareness. And our awareness can be either limited and we see only narrow perspectives or can be broadened. And then we see a wider perspective, a more broad understanding of things. And I got fascinated by that because also, as I learned transcendental meditation, I realized that consciousness can be developed. Consciousness can be expanded. It's not just something that is an all or none phenomenon, or either you have it or you don't have it. But we can have dull consciousness. You can have deep consciousness. You can have broad consciousness. You can be alert, you can be half asleep, half alert. 
and you can be very wide alert but tense. You can also be very wide alert but rested. And so all these combinations lead to different ways we perceive ourselves, we perceive our environment, and we can have a sense of what is true reality, what is happening, what I can do, what are the options that I have. So when we are under stress, our consciousness is narrow because our nervous system gets into a way of functioning, which is either a fight or flight response. And therefore, you don't use anymore the higher parts of the nervous system, the cortex and other parts. You're using mainly the limbic system, which is the core brain that is found usually in most mammals and developed animals, as it is in our nervous system. But we have a much more developed cortex, which is the value of the brain that is on top of the central part, which is just below the skull, and mainly developed frontal parts, which are the place where we have expectations, anticipation of the future, planning, and the executive functions of our physiology and nervous system. And so these can be more or less inhibited or activated depending on the situation in which we are. And stress seems to focus on the lower parts of the brain because of the evolutionary past that led us from being in the jungle where we have to fight and and fear and therefore quick reactions. And that is not the time, for example, to think about the meaning of the universe and the meaning of life and music and philosophy. And so one gets stuck in this part And then the options are reduced because we don't have the full ability of the nervous system available to us. So I got fascinated by that as having studied not just medicine, but I have been through psychiatry and then neurology and learning more about consciousness, about the nervous system, went into the research on it myself. And so all of these factors led me to see, is there a way other than chemicals and drugs to help develop our physiology and balance it? And there was this very profound holistic approach from the mind level, from consciousness level, which is based on very ancient knowledge. And so as I investigated it and practiced it and see its results, I got more and more fascinated by it and spent then my directed my career in life towards this development of consciousness. So you work closely with the transcendental meditation founder Marishi Mash Yogi for almost 30 years. How did that experience influence or impacted your life, you know, being near him and studying from him? It impacted me very profoundly because first I saw in him whatever he is teaching. He you know, walks the talk, he does the things, he is what he represents and what he speaks about. He has that wholeness, that fullness, that restfulness, yet bright, shining being and very alert, very clear, very caring, very all-encompassing ability to see things from different perspectives. So, you know, he had that what we call the third element or the second element, which means if you're considering a problem and discussing it, and you see only a few options, it was so wonderful to see how he finds 
the option that is not actually obvious, but that leads to big solutions and resolutions of the difficulties and resolution of things that seem to be contradictory or unable to be resolved. And so all of this on the basis of consciousness and being with him as an apprentice, if you like. So I learned through his actions, through his way of doing, through his vision, and more and more spending time near him, I got to acquire this sense of wholeness of things, this compassion for everything, this love of life and wanting all good to everyone. And so it was really very, very profound. Knowledge-wise, it's fulfilling from the intellectual level. And experience-wise, it was fulfilling from the direct experience of one's being developed and grown and living the reality of what one is talking about. What would be like the one thing that you most remember? Like, uh, you know, and I'm sure you probably have thousands of them, you know, thousands of moments, but do you have like any one particular that you remember from being near him? Yeah, I think you're absolutely accurate that there's so many of them that I'll have to pick uh, one or the other. But in general, what I feel really is, um, has been marking is the fact that when I'm with him, it's his presence and his ability to be with you 100%. And you feel that as if the whole world stops and there is nothing else that is going on. You know, sometimes when you are with different busy people or people who have things they are worried about, you feel that they are with you partially and their mind is also jumping on so many things behind the scene. So they look at you, they seem to be listening to you, but you feel that um, they're busy on other things. And one of the striking things is that every time under every circumstance, even if we are in a big meeting, when Marshi looked at me, I don't know how others felt when he looked at them, but when he looked at me and talked to me, I really felt complete presence, 100% presence. And that presence is, is really beautiful and it really connects, it opens the door for communication, for understanding, for being open to knowledge and to experience on a very profound level. Yeah, I'm sure, especially in these times when we are so bombarded with so many, you know, uh, interferences to be present to someone's presence at that level, it's probably been very, very profound, I'm sure. So eventually you were also chosen by him to be his successor. Um, can you get back maybe to the moment, you know, when this was announced and you know, how did you feel, you, you feel about that, you know? Throughout the years, Maharishi has had many, many structures of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so he created different names for different responsibilities for different people. And then they changed and it changed over time. So when he decided to structure the whole activity of the Transcendental Meditation Program and its advanced techniques and all the universities that we have and the different activities, he said, let's create it like a global kind of country almost, you know, like a country of world peace, he calls it. 
where it's not country that is on the basis of geography or, you know, or belief, even belief system, but on the basis of consciousness, on the basis of experience, on the basis of development of the whole potential of life. And he said, I want you to be responsible for that. And he took it in a very traditional, ancient way, in a way that means one is taking that responsibility like a parental role. And the parental role means the parents love their children and they give them everything to support. So it was really a responsibility of service, of giving, of supporting others, of unifying, making sure everything works well. And whereas there is diversity, one has to have that responsibility of unifying, of upholding, of nourishing and supporting. So it's really, you know, one can see that leadership can be seen as a position of power, but in this case, it's like more like the position of a parent in a family, mm-hmm. a position of service and of nourishing and of giving and of understanding and forgiving. <laughs> and so when he first did it, I thought this is one of those things, maybe one day things will change. And But for many, many years, this had started in the year 2000 when he gave me that responsibility. So quite a long time before he left because he left in 2008. So there were some 17, 18 years of maintaining this momentum and keep on reinforcing, in fact, my responsibility. And uh, I was also feeling sometimes maybe I'm being tested to see I'm (laughs) up to the work and like that. So I went through uh, many experiences with him, many different conditions which were very beautiful and I was working on some research and on consciousness and the physiology and then when he left he before he left he said now I'm leaving and I know the world will be our world of course uh, will be in good hands and some of the last words he said is that now I'm leaving and now you will feel the whole weight of of the responsibility on your shoulders and so this is when I realized it's it's for real. <laughs> so you really felt the weight. <laughs> kind of, of course, a little bit, but it was a joyful weight. <laughs> so recently you published your new book. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. So it's called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, Simple Answers to the Big Questions in Life. My question is, what are the big questions in life? (laughs) Big questions in life has been there, you know, since philosophy was created, since minds were thinking. Why are we here? Where do we come from? What's the purpose of life? Where do we go? Do we have freedom? Or is everything orderly and deterministic? How does matter connect to mind, consciousness, with physiology? What is the origin of evil? You know, why do we have to suffer? Why is not everything perfect? And how the mechanics of life happen? What are the rules? What is the basis for what truly should make us happy over the long term? What is luck? What is misfortune? Why even children can suffer, innocent people? And so, you know, these are the big questions of philosophy for all time. 
including some, you know, big things that they call epistemology and ontology, but we don't have to use those words, which means what can we know? What is the scope of knowledge? And what is the essence of things? What is existence? What is reality? Since everything's changing all the time, physiologically and all that, what is constant? What is a reference? So such questions, and what can we do about it also? Not just philosophical understanding and theoretical analysis, but also what can be done about it so that we are more in tune with the laws of life, with the laws of nature, with the laws, if one is a believer of the divine, of, you know, the will of the divine, if one is a believer, or the laws of nature, if one is a scientist that is materialistic in some sense. So all of these big questions that remain questions that are debated and looked at from so many different perspectives, this is what the book deals with, and it deals with it on the basis of consciousness, awareness. So these are really big questions, and the promise of the book is to have simple answers to them. So I, I was thinking maybe we can have a bit of a glimpse to, to the simple answers to some of these big questions, like, you know, why are we here, for example? <laughs> the answers, you know, are simple, but the steps to get to them require a little bit of logic. Otherwise, I can give the answer and it will look like a dogma. It will look like a belief, you know. There are many answers that are given to these questions. You know, you can say, we are here because God created us. We are here because it's a mistake of nature or it's a chance occurrence. It just happens, you know, there is chaos and then suddenly out of chaos, there is organizational things and all over the universe. You know, the probability of getting people like us is, you know, possible because there are so many options of trial and error and, you know, is it a design or is it a Darwinian kind of evolution that led us to where we are? So there are all of these hints and ideas that one can get from science and from logic and from belief or from different wise teachings and people's approaches to things. And, you know, the purpose of life, we can say, is the expansion of happiness. The purpose of life is the expansion of consciousness. And when consciousness expands, there is greater appreciation of the true reality from its own perspective, from different perspectives, and then ultimately the realization of the wholeness of life is where fulfillment comes. So these are kind of answers, but ultimately it's also about knowledge, about knowing. Consciousness gives the ability to be conscious. And to be conscious of something is to have an observer, a process of observation, and an object that is observed. Or if you like, a knower, a process of knowing and a known. So if consciousness knows itself, it curves on itself because that is the primary value. And as it knows itself, it experiences itself from different, different perspectives. So there are infinite number of perspectives that consciousness can experience itself from. And all these perspectives are available even through living beings or animals or trees and all of that. 
And they are all an expression of different ways consciousness manifests itself and experiences itself. So you can say that knowledge is at the basis of the meaning of existence. And this knowledge or to know oneself is the guiding principle that guides us towards truly knowing higher values, ultimately knowing true reality. And that is why the purpose as we live is to know more, experience more, grow more, and reach the ultimate truths of reality in communion with the full value of what is real, what is truly the basis of all that there is. And ultimately, this is the one unbounded consciousness, the one unbounded ocean of consciousness. Now, when I say it this way, and that's why it's not <laughs> obvious to answer the question like this, it might sound like another philosophy or another belief system. But in the book, I go through this systematically and see from different angles of science, what science says about consciousness, what is consciousness? Is it material? Does it come from the activity of matter? Is it primary? What is the relationship between the non-material and the material? And what is primary and how one can actually lead to the other? If it is material, how could material lead to consciousness? If it is consciousness, how could consciousness appear as matter and why? And so when one reads through it, goes through the steps, then one understands that these answers are not just dogmatic belief or just being thrown, but the outcome of a systematic deduction and systematic logic. And I hope that the readers will find in this a source of thinking and analyzing and pondering and experiencing and hopefully understanding this purpose and this perspective in life, which ultimately is what is mentioned by all the big traditions of knowledge and wisdom, including the belief systems which it rejoins and rejoins them on some common denominator that shows that even the great knowers, the great prophets, the great, you know, even scientists ultimately merge and come to a point where they could see and understand this as being the reality. So you said that one of the purposes of life is to experience and to have uh, happiness and awareness. But, you know, in life, you also have the other part, the misery and the suffering. So are this also part of our life that we cannot have life without them? We can have life without them, but it's a question of, again, that brings us to another big question of life, and that is freedom and responsibility. And then, you know, why we get uh, what we get. And... Ultimately, it is in the process of growth and development, one can meet situations and circumstances. And from those situations and circumstances, one can grow and transcend them, if you like, go beyond them, but also learn from them. And one can open and widen one's awareness as one grows into different perspectives and then be able to make better choices in life. So 
we can say that basically there is a responsibility also in action. And this is, you know, what you sow, so shall you reap. This is whatever one plants, one can get the fruits of one's action. So if you plant an orange tree, then a few years later, you're going to get oranges from that tree. If you plant a lemon tree, you will get citrus trees. You know, both are useful. The lemon is a little more sour, the orange is more sweet, but you can use the lemon also to make other foods balanced and give a good taste. <laughs> and you can use the orange for sweet things. So all these things come as possibilities based on our actions and the reactions to our action. And whatever we plant, whatever we sow, then we will get. And then it's up to us with our broader consciousness to be able to manage the situations at hand, even if, you know, we thought we wanted something sweet, but we planted a lemon tree, we come to the lemon and we try it and we sour and we think, oh, this is suffering. But, you know, you can say, well, I can use it for something else. I can change it. I can channel it. I can learn from it something and I can grow. And for this, you know, life is always teaching us lessons and is guiding us. And we grow in understanding and grow understanding about the nature of life, about the nature of things, about the wholeness of living and life and the underlying unity in life. And that's how we keep growing. So we should take responsibility <laughs> also. For what we planted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In your new book, you also talk about higher states of consciousness. Can you say a bit more about what are these higher states and you know how they are relevant for our day-to-day -day life? Yes, actually, yeah, higher states of consciousness are very primordial in also understanding and experiencing the true nature of life and in growing in our ability to be happy because we did say that part of the process of life is the expansion of happiness and the expansion of happiness comes from the expansion of consciousness so we have states of consciousness even from purely scientific level we have sleeping dreaming and waking that have their own signature that own characteristics of not only the experience on the consciousness level, on the awareness level, but also physiological changes. In sleep, you have a different physiology, different brainwave activity, different hormonal secretions than during dreaming or during waking. And so every state of consciousness, these three major states of consciousness, have their own mental experience, and also physical reality, physically definable. What has been discovered is in 1974 by a student who made his PhD degree, Dr. Keith Wallace at University of California, Los Angeles, and his papers were published in peer-reviewed journals, is that people who practice transcendental meditation, they reach a state which on the consciousness level is very different from the other three states. And that state is a state of very high alertness, very wakeful, yet very rested. So the physiology has this dual thing, which is not present in sleep, for example, where you have rest, but you have also 
no awareness. The awareness is not there. It's dull or very low. In dream, you have an illusionary state of awareness, but you have activity. So you're not conscious of the outside world. You don't have true awareness of the environment, but you still have activity that takes place inside the body. During dream, you know, people can get a heart attack if they are sensitive and they have a bad dream. So there is an activity and changes in the physiology. During waking, you are awake and you are active at the same time. But none of these states has the two things together that are depressed at the same time, high alertness and changes in the electroencephalography of the brain that are very typical and very different from the other states. And so this has been discovered to be a fourth major state of consciousness. So we call this a higher state of consciousness because it is a hypometabolic high alert state, which is rest and sharpness. And this is why this technique has been used for, for example, pilots who are fighter pilots because they need to have sharp ability to concentrate, but have to maintain their rest and their broad comprehension. And for different situations where you are not overwhelmed by stress because you are rested inside, yet you are able to concentrate even deeper and more sharply on things. And this is uh, the force, what we call the fourth state of consciousness. And it's a higher state. Now, what develops with time is that what you are experiencing during the practice of transcendental meditation now becomes available to you even during activity or during waking state. And therefore, now you are very deeply rested and you stay calm inside and rested and equanimous, not shaken by situations, yet you are acting on the outside very deeply. When this state of what we call transcendental state, the state of pure consciousness, which is the state of pure state of awareness without any object of awareness, when this state is stabilized inside, and at the same time you are awake and active on the outside, this is another state which we call the fifth state of consciousness. Because first, the fourth state is something you experience during meditation, during transcending. You experience this inner quiet, peace, inner infinite silence, and yet you are alert, you're awake. Now, when you open your eyes, this silence stays with you a little bit, but not completely. When you are practicing regularly this technique, this state of inner silence, inner quiet, remains with you all the time, even when you are active. That we call a fifth major state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And from there, you have even a higher glorified fifth state of consciousness, and ultimately what we call unity consciousness, when you realize that this state of pure consciousness is not only inside you, but it's the sap that nourishes all aspects of life, that it is the source of all the outer existence. Is that what we call the one field? Many... Yes, the unified field, yes. The unified field of... And this is not far from what physics says. It's, this is what is beautiful, is that it has been documented by physics that all the surface values, which are so different on the surface, 
if you look at what they are made of, you come to, you know, if it's a human body, you say it's organs, tissues, and then you go to cells. What are they made of? All cells, all tissues, all organs are made out of molecules. All molecules are made out of atoms. What are the atoms made of? They are made of elementary particles. What are the elementary particles made of? They're made of fields, fields of energy. They are energy. So we know matter and energy are the same. Matter is energy. So, so there is some reality which is underlying all the surface value. And as scientists kept going deeper, they discovered that these fields, which on some level they appear different, like electricity is different from magnetism, but then they find, no, it's the same. It's just two expressions of the same field, the electromagnetic field. And as you go deeper and deeper, you find that ultimately there is one unified field of all the laws of nature, which is itself the source of all these different fields. And then the fields, they get fluctuations and they become apparently like particles, particles come together, they become atoms, atoms come together, create, you know, molecules, molecules come together, they get cells and tissues and human beings and the whole universe. So when you really technically analyze it, everything is made from that one field, which we call the unified field of all the laws of nature. The only addition to that that you need to do, and this is where the book brings this to light, is that this unified field is a field of consciousness. It's a field of consciousness. So that's why it's called an unbounded ocean of consciousness, one unbounded ocean of consciousness. And that's the source of everything. So ultimately, when we go deeper and deeper in our reality, we are all connected. We are all one at the source, and we appear many on the surface. Different shapes. Yes. So a couple of days ago, when this interview was set, I posted on my Facebook page that I'm going to interview you. And I asked, you know, my, my friends and you know, people who follow me, I asked them, so what would you like to ask him? And there were a couple of questions there, but I picked two, <laughs> which I want to bring with you. So one of them, the question, it repeated itself in different ways. People realize the importance of meditation and how it helps you. But the question was so hard to do that. You know, people find it a bit hard or struggling with being able to do it or to feel what they are, you know, believe they should feel. Very important question because there are different kinds of meditation. You know, if you take, let's say, some white powder and you say, well, this is white powder. Okay, but what powder? Is it talc powder? Is it sugar? Is it salt? Is it, you know, anything else? It could be a million things, you know, or maybe not a million, but whatever. <laughs> it could be a number of things. So not all meditations mean the same thing. So you have different techniques of meditation. You have concentration techniques. These are more difficult because usually you take a flame, you take an object and you force your mind to stay on that object. So this is concentrating in the mind tries to go away, you bring it back, you bring it back. And that is hard and as if it's work. You have other techniques such as contemplation techniques. Contemplation techniques is like you take a word, let's say love or compassion or some nice proverb, you know, humans were created in the image of God or something like that. And you start thinking about it. 
you analyze it, you contemplate about it, you contemplate about your life, you ask questions about things. So it's kind of floating around. And all of these are helpful. You know, there is mindfulness also that we, we know is now very common, where you actually become mindful of something, like your breathing, for example. Usually our mind is jumping around. We say now, let me direct my attention to my breathing. So you feel your breathing coming in and out. And you are usually told if you feel some sensation or some fear or some feeling or anxiety, just try to witness it, try to say it's only a thought, that it's not you, and therefore, you know, you be mindful of your breathing, go back to this, go back to that. All of these have effects, but they are guiding the mind towards something specific. What we say is the mind is like an ocean. It's active on its surface and more and more quiet as we go to its depths. Once we reach the bottom of the ocean, it's completely silent. And the mind is like this. It has all these dimensions. Being on the concentration or contemplation or directing the attention of the mind is like floating on the surface of the ocean. It gives you some joy. You might dive a little bit, but it is kind of work a little bit. That's why people say, or the question comes that, why is it difficult? Because you have to do something. You've been working all day and now you have to come and do something again. And you just force the mind and you don't want, you want to float around. Transcendental meditation is really different. It's very different. Transcendental meditation does not control the mind, does not force the mind, does not try to do something. It's a simple technique that allows the mind to dive towards the inside of the ocean of the mind. So you take the right angle, of course there is a technique, and you allow the mind to settle down. And the mind settles down guided by its own nature because it is searching something more pleasant, that is the nature of the mind. And inside is the source of our creativity, the source of our thought, the source of our intelligence. It is ourself. It is the source of who we are. And that is the unified field that we talked about. So whenever you give the mind something that attracts it, and in this case, the inner self, then it goes to it. And it goes naturally. So you don't have to force it. You don't have to make an effort. And that's why transcendental meditation is extremely easy, extremely simple. In fact, the only difficulty of transcendental meditation is if you try to make an effort. If you try, <laughs> if you try to make it work more than just being innocent about it. Maybe it's something that is like controversial to how we used to life. You know, we used to put our efforts to get a result. And here it's to say something completely different. Exactly, exactly. We're always projecting outside. But we remember that the effort, the action, is based on thinking. When you act, you think, and then you act. You plan, and then you act. In order to have effective action, you have to have powerful, effective thought, effective planning. And then if the effective planning is a good action, a good action leads to achievement and then achievement leads to fulfillment. So in order to get fulfillment, you have to have good achievement, 
to get good achievement, you have to have good, powerful, purposeful action. But to have good, powerful, purposeful action, you have to have good thinking, good planning. And where does the thought come from? From somewhere inside. So we dive inside ourselves to the source of intelligence, to the source of thought. And this is how we have a dynamic action based on clear thought process. So if you are tired and you're acting all the time and acting, you get tired and then you get lost and then you fall, <laughs> fall apart. What you need is rest. You get some rest during sleep, but it's not enough. You need a deeper rest. And that's what transcendental meditation does. It actually gives you very deep rest. So you go inward in order to be effective on the outside. You let go, you go deep within in order to go outside. So if you want to throw a stone, you don't just do like this. You go back, you know, and throw it. If you want to, you have an arrow and you want to throw the arrow to the target, you pull the arrow back. And by pulling the arrow back, then the target can go forward. So pull the arrow back in the self, take the strength from the roots of life. It's like the tree wants to go high. You can say, what is it wasting its energy and time to drive down in its roots? Why shouldn't it go out and create a beautiful tree? Well, without the roots, you don't have a tree. It needs the nourishment. So we need to go down inside. And that is the moment, 20 minutes, morning and evening, where you dive within and then you shoot the arrow in a powerful way. So I know there have been some studies, and I'm sure you know more about it, that we get enough people to meditate together. Can that really impact humanity or impact you know, situations like in very conflicted areas or things like that? Absolutely. This has been tried many, many times, and we have research on it. And this is also important, is at what level we are meditating. If we are floating on the surface of the ocean, then the effect is on the surface only. If we dive deep, so if we transcend, then the effect is there. So the effect comes from owning that field, which is the source of all the surface value. If you want to act on a mechanical level, it's very surface. If you go to the energy on a deeper level, you get much more power. The deep level of atomic energy is much more powerful than the surface mechanical energy. And deeper than the atomic is actually ultimately the self, the unified field. And that we have access to as human beings through our consciousness. We transcend and then we enliven the field which creates balance and strength and invincibility and peace and prosperity. And for this, you need a certain percentage of people practicing transcendental meditation. And the more advanced techniques, they have shown that only the square root of 1% of the population of a country or square root of 1% of the population of the world practicing these technologies together enliven natural law and allow people to find solutions on the surface that they didn't think about before because they were acting with limited perception with limited vision. Now they see broadly their interest on a short time and on a long time. And these solutions come up because there is more clarity in the collective consciousness, what we call the collective consciousness. So there is individual consciousness, my consciousness, your consciousness, 
And as we dive deep, we find that this consciousness is the same. And that is collective consciousness. That is a number of people together or even separately that transcend. They enliven the collective consciousness of society and bring these benefits forth into the expressed manifest field of life and living. Are we any close to this one percent of <laughs> of people? You know, not really, not yet. We're working on it. And thanks to your uh, talk today, and uh, maybe we will have a few more. <laughs> and like this, we gradually, gradually learn about this aspect of life and enliven it in our life. So the other question I got for you: one, if your book will be uh, published in Hebrew, and second, is when are you coming to Israel? <laughs> Oh, I, I look forward to coming soon. The book is now only an e-book in English, and it's in print in Spanish and in e-book in Spanish, and it's being translated in Hebrew. We hope within a few months that okay. it will be published in Hebrew. It's, the work is going on, hopefully two, three months, uh, I hope. But you can get it on Amazon or, or the other parts as an e-book in English. We'll put a link with this episode as well so people could uh, have a direct link to the Amazon book. And the last question I had for you, you know, the question that I asked all the people that I interviewed is that if I could arrange for you a huge billboard that will be put in the center of the world that anyone could see it, anyone in the world could see this billboard, what message would you put on it? How many sentences I have? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a huge billboard, but, you know, <laughs> again. <laughs> I would say uh, humans were made in the image of God, and it is our birthright to live that reality of fullness and wholeness. What we need is to transcend, go back to ourselves, raise our individual and collective consciousness, and live the fullness of life that we deserve to have. What I, you know, really struck me is what to get back to ourselves. I think yes. that's something that yes. is a very powerful message. Yes. yes, this has been a wisdom throughout time, you know, know thyself and all of that. Beautiful. Mm. So you, you have a small billboard. I, I'll, I'll take a few little more words. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, really want to thank you for your time. It's It's been a real privilege for me to have you here and to have this interview with you. And I hope this interview will find more people, you know, relate. I'm sure it will. And uh, we'll get closer to this 1%. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. It's a delight to be with you. It was a joy. And maybe when your listeners and those who follow you read the book, we can come back and answer questions if they have. This will be wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.